You're listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church. Um, if you're a guest with us this morning, we have been going through the book of Acts, our series called Unhindered, which actually comes from the last verse of the book of Acts, where uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul, under house arrest, continues to preach the gospel uh, unhindered, even though he's under house arrest, he's meeting with folks, and he's sharing with them uh, the good news of Jesus. So I... I'm excited about today's passage. Like, I would preach this passage every day, it feels like. I I love where we're headed, and I love what Acts chapter 10 is for the rest of the book. Acts chapter 10 is this this turning point in, in the understanding of the gospel, that Jesus died for us, that he rose, that in him we have life. So, we do have this idea Gospel is for all people. But I want you just to imagine just Genesis. Just take a moment, imagine Genesis for a second, not Genesis today, but maybe Genesis of the future, and ask yourselves, who's there? Who's a part of what goes on? Like, would, uh, do we have room in our minds for people who don't look like us? Perhaps, uh, perhaps like this. Do we have room in our minds for, uh, for moms who might parent different than us, who live, uh, who have different uh, convictions or have different experiences? Uh, and not only that, but do we have room for people who might have even voted differently than us? Right, I mean, that's coming up this week. So, uh, like, we have all of these things. We, we talk about this many weeks, but all of these things that roll around in our heads that we don't actually act like, maybe we don't want to say they're barriers, but they are. Like, you know, you roll up in here with a Beto sticker, look out, right? Like, everyone's gonna be like, you see that person over there? Like, what are they, what are they wearing? Do, they think, do you think they know Jesus, right? Like, we already start to divide ourselves up over things that are not central to our faith. And we do this time and time and time again where we decide to divide, choose who is in and who is out without actually asking ourselves important questions like what matters the most? What is the most significant thing? What is what unifies us? And so my question is how we fill in this blank this morning. Jesus died for whom? Now, you, you are all, I know a good number of you now, you're all pretty smart folks. Uh, you, you know how to answer that question. You know how to fill in the blank. You know how to tell your kids how to fill in the blank. So it's not really a matter of can you intellectually make the distinction between uh, or ask in the question, you know, for whom did Jesus die? You can answer that question. So often the division or the, 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 the gap that we have to jump over is in our hearts. And that's a battle that we'll see these first century believers fighting in Acts chapter 10. And then 10 years later in Acts chapter 15, they come back to it because they're still trying to figure out how this all works together. So in Acts chapter 10, we're going to start seeing it. Acts chapter 15, it's going to continue. We do know how to answer the question, but we don't always actually live that out. So what we're going to do this morning is look at Acts chapter 10, the whole chapter. We're just going to do it chunk by chunk, Acts chapter 10. 
And then after we go through just what is the content of Acts chapter 10, we're gonna go back through and just go, okay, are there some specific ways that we as a church family, some specific things that we as a church family can hold onto from Acts chapter 10? Because Acts chapter 10, if you're unfamiliar with where we are, is, is that right, Jesus said in, in chapter one, verse eight, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He, he gives them a direction and he gives them the empowerment that comes from the Spirit. But that doesn't just mean because Jesus says it that they understand all of the implications of that. Just because Jesus died doesn't mean that they're like, oh yeah, I totally get it. In fact, when you came to faith, I bet you're still rethinking and undoing things that you believed before and ways that you behaved before because it's not like that just kind of packs its bags and runs off. It's still there and it's still a part of your story and there's still things that, that you know you're doing that the Lord would not have for you to do. And we see that in Acts chapter 10. So we're gonna go through this. Acts chapter 10 is about six movements, okay? Six different chunks of story that all move us to one grand idea. And the first chunk is just Cornelius's vision. This is Cornelius is a guy who is, uh, he is a Roman leader in the army. Okay, so he oversees soldiers. And he was an upstanding man in Caesarea. So we're gonna start with just the first eight verses in Cornelius's vision. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius. Not Yukon Cornelius, so that's coming in the coming you know, month and a half before Christmas. A centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man. He feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to all people, prayed continually to God. And about the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly a vision, an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? He said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God and now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, who is, whose house is by the sea. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among these who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So just in those first eight verses, this is like we see God doing something in the life of Cornelius. Now there's a word we have to associate with Cornelius, which is Gentile. Okay, so if we're unfamiliar with Jew and Gentile distinction, this is both religious and ethnic distinction. That, that there was a, that Jesus was a Jew, and you might say that Jews hold on to, right, like the, the right of salvation, like it's theirs. And then we have Cornelius, a Gentile, and he was a God-fearer, which is a kind of a category of people in the book of Acts, which aren't believers, but, they're, but God is drawing them. They're concerned, they're interested about the scriptures, and they love what they hear. In fact, we saw the eunuch, right? The Ethiopian eunuch in chapter eight, he was kind of going along on his way, and uh, he's interested in things of scripture. He's trying to worship in Jerusalem and understand who God is. Well, so we have Cornelius. Cornelius is not a Jew. He doesn't have the history and the lineage that the Jews had. And uh, there would be just in, in just how they operate distinctions between what they might believe and how they might act and what they know and the social class in which they run. But there he is in Caesarea and God gives him a vision. And he says, I need you to go get Peter. 
I need you to go get Peter. Go down to Caesarea. Peter's staying at the house of Simon the Tanner. Send men, go get him and have him come to you. So that's going on and God is preparing Cornelius. And then we have Peter's vision. And so after that, Luke, who the author of Acts, he kind of moves us to this next idea. And Peter has a vision. The next day, verse nine, as soon as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. I love verse 10, I just need to stop. Like, the Bible just wants to let you know Peter got hungry. He got hungry and he wanted to eat something. And while they were eating, something else happened. Or while they were preparing it, something else happened. So I just love 10 because the Spirit inspired Luke to let you know that Peter got hungry. Now he fell into a trance. He saw the heavens open up in something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there was a voice. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. These things were unclean. A good Jew wouldn't eat the things falling down in the sheet. So you can understand the dissonance that would exist between what Peter's hearing and what Peter's experience has taught him is right. You ever been there? Certain things that you must do, and that's, those are good things. And now he hears this voice, and this voice says, do something you've never done before. Do something that might actually make you unclean from your understanding. So Peter goes, by no means, Lord. Apparently he knows the voice. For I have never eaten anything common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. And then the thing was taken up into heaven. Now, you ever made a statement like Peter's made? I've never, ever done that. It sounds, I mean, it's similar to, not the exact same, but similar to like the rich young ruler. Oh, well, I've, I've, I've done all the things you're asking me to do, Jesus. This voice is saying, do this. Peter goes, no, I've never done anything like that. I, I have been a good Jew my whole life. I have obeyed and understood what God has wanted. Never once have I deterred from that, moved away from that. I am going to do faithfully, ex execute what you would have for me to do, God. But Peter's old understanding of how God operated was messing with the new understanding of how God was operating. In fact, Jesus already said with his disciples while he was on earth, nothing goes into a man that makes him unclean. He's already spoken about food and that food doesn't make you unclean. It's what comes out of your mouth because that comes from your heart. So Peter's having to relearn a lesson that Jesus taught to him some time ago. Three times this sheet comes down. Now that's important, I think for a couple of reasons, but one primarily is how many people did Cornelius send? Three. Cornelius sends three Gentiles to Peter's house. Peter is having this vision where God is showing him, don't call unclean what God has called clean. And then, verse 17, as we have Jews and Gentiles together, Peter was inwardly perplexed as to the vision he had seen, what it might mean. And then behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius having made inquiry for Simon's house stood at the gate, called out to him, to ask, called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. So confused about the vision, three times the sheet comes down, now three Gentiles show up at Peter's door. 
and he is confused. Well, while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said, behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the man man and said, I'm the one you're looking for. I'm the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? They said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who was well-spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you and to come to this house and to hear what you had to say. So Peter invited them in to be his guests. So God gives a vision over here in Cornelius' world, and then God gives a vision over in Peter's world, and now these worlds are starting to come together, okay? This happens. In church planting among the unreached, there are stories of people who go, I I had a vision that you were gonna tell me something. I'm looking for somebody who has this message. I quoted that recently about somebody who said, okay, I've had a vision after vision, and they said that somebody in this city is gonna tell me what this means. Can you tell me what this means? And so this isn't just like spooky language in the book of Acts. This is sometimes what God uses and how God moves in order to stir people toward him. So on one side, God is preparing Cornelius, and on the other side, God is preparing Peter so that when the people Cornelius sent are there, Peter goes, I get it. I know what's going on here. I know what you need. I'm the guy you're looking for. So now we have Jew and Gentile together. As we move into the next paragraph, we're gonna be together in Cornelius' home So now Jew is going to the home of Gentile, right? He's crossing a boundary that's hard for him to cross. Peter's taking, like this is like working his theology out as he's going. And we still know that Peter doesn't do this perfectly. Paul confronts him later, says, hey man, like you need to know that this isn't how this is supposed to work. This isn't how, uh, you know, like you you don't act like a Jew over here and then like a Gentile over there and hide those two worlds, you're free. And so we still know Peter's not perfect at this, but he's learning and working out what God has told him. So here we have it. The next day, he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. So now we have this little entourage going to Caesarea over there on the coast. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and called together his relatives and his close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshiped him. Peter lifted him up and said, stand up. I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate or visit with another nation, with anyone from another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then, why you sent me. That continues. Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house. At the ninth hour, behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing, and he said, Cornelius, your prayers have been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. Send, therefore, to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He's lodging at the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you've been kind enough to come now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have, commi- ha- have been commanded by the Lord. And so vision from Cornelius, vision from Peter, they're together, they travel. Now Cornelius is there, and he just repeats, hey, God has said this, so we're just here to listen. And what has Cornelius done? He has invited over anybody he knows, right? Friends, family, like, get into the house. We need to hear what Peter has to say. 
Have you ever been that person or seen people like that? When you start to get excited about something, you just want to include people on it. And so he's bringing them over. Come over, come over, come over, come over, come over. Peter's coming. You're like, Peter? Who's Peter? I don't know who Peter is. You just need to hear what Peter has to say. And so we have then, in about the next nine verses, or 34 through 43, Peter is bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. He gets to speak gospel truth to the Gentiles. Acts chapter 10 is that pivotal moment where Peter's realizing something true about how God operates. So Peter opened his mouth. He said, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that, his, as for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Now, as I just kind of step into this moment as Peter's preaching and telling them about Jesus, like I, I can hear, I hear, see Cornelius and his family going, oh, and like, like light switches are coming on and they're making connections now. Now, you'll, we'll see soon, like Paul's sermon in the synagogue is really lengthy and full of scripture and all these things. Peter's just talking to Gentiles going, hey, listen, you've heard about Jesus? Let me just tell you a little bit about him. Like he, he came, he died, he rose, and salvation is found in him. He didn't go into this lengthy explanation at this point in time. He didn't even have to convince them. Sometimes God allows for us to kind of step into somebody's path and he seems to have prepared them so much that it's just kind of like this softball, right? Where you're just kind of like, great, like, yeah. Like, hey, can you tell us exactly what you want to tell us about Jesus? Because we're kind of ready. That isn't always the case, but we see it here. And so imagine that they're there and they're hearing the good news. And as he's saying this, it's like, it's like this kind of communal switch flips because we see salvation come. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit comes to the Gentiles. While Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out, listen to this, even on the Gentiles. They weren't even expecting it. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus. And they asked him to remain there for some days. Acts chapter 10. Now, if you remember Pentecost, 
the people who were praying in that moment were Jews. Those were those who were gathered in the city and praying. And when the tongues came, they were coming on those of the Jewish faith. And so now we're in Acts chapter 10 and we're having a similar experience, but we're having it with non-Jews, religiously different ethnically different, culturally different, everything is different, and they're kind of going, wait a second, wait a second, we saw this happen, and now it's happening here. And so this is, like, this can really mess with your world, because you believe certain things, and you behave a certain way, and so often who you are are kind of bound up together. Like, do I do this because I was taught that this is important, or do I do this because I believe that this is important? How do, why do I live this way? And you see somebody who doesn't live that way receive the same spirit, and now you're going, huh. Like, their word, they were amazed that the spirit was falling. Peter goes, well, can, I mean, can we withhold them from being baptized? It doesn't seem like it, because now the spirits come to them too. It's not as if the Spirit wouldn't have come to them, but you'll find if you actually kind of scan back through chapters one through 10, specifically about like what happens in Samaria, Peter's around. He's around in these examples. He's there in Acts chapter 10. He kind of comes and investigates what's going on uh, when they're preaching uh, outside of Jerusalem. And so it's like God is trying to teach him a specific lesson a specific lesson about the people Jesus died for. We ask ourselves that question, Jesus died for whom? We know the answer, but ignore the truth that the gospel truly is for all people. We'll stand there like the Jews in Cornelius' house and go, wait a second, them too? Them too? Huh. It's not just for the people who were raised like us. It's not just the people that we like. It's not just the people that we're comfortable with. God's vision for his church is greater than yours, it's greater than mine. His hope for his church is greater than yours and it's greater than mine. What he sees Genesis as is much greater than anything you or I could dream up and long for. I mean, we could have the loftiest, most hopeful, like as we could just go, God, if you could do these 10,000 things, and he goes, just 10,000? That's all you want? That's all you long for? That's all you hope for? That's all you'll strive for? That's it? Oh, I could do so much more. I long to do so much more. I will do so much more. Because with Peter, they would not have sat there and gone, okay, well, let's just put on a chart. Like, who are the people that God would save? Go, well, you know, I'm a Jew, some Jews. And then, what about Cornelius? Well, we don't know. Cornelius kind of smells bad. He eats weird food. Like, we don't want to go there. And so, starting to divide up, but God's going, no, 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 no. That's not how I work. The work God is doing to save sinners goes beyond borders. It goes beyond our understandings of what is right and what is wrong. It goes over racial divides. It goes over religious divides and historical divides and cultural divides because we all need salvation from Jesus. No one, no one has the corner of the market on it. Salvation comes through Jesus. It doesn't come through another group to Jesus and then to God. That's not how it works. It combines all people from all nations to be a part of a worshiping community of one Lord, Jesus Christ, all made possible by his work. And so then we stand and wonder, God, what could you do? 
God shows us in 10 what could be done. Now, there are theological implications of 10 that the Jerusalem Council works out in 15, where they're still trying to figure out, okay, what does this all mean? But the idea of the gospel message and for whom it's for, that has been decided. And now what Peter is trying, to, or the Lord is trying to do in Peter's life is show him that it's been decided. That Peter doesn't pick who's in and who's out. It's the Lord's work. I want to bring to attention as we look at this passage, because, because that divide has been covered in Acts chapter 10, I want to look at this passage and, and bring to mind maybe three things that can help us from Acts 10 walk more faithfully with Jesus. And the first is this that we see in 10. God is active beyond our expectations. Peter's at Simon the Tanner's house and he was praying and he was up on a roof. He got hungry. He was, in, in his world, there was not some category for like, okay, God, bring Cornelius to me. It wasn't that. God was doing something. God was moving in a certain way. God was teaching and instructing. So God gives Cornelius the mess, like a vision, and God gives Peter a vision, but neither one was expecting the vision. It's not as if you just kind of go, okay, well, if you do these seven things, then God will definitely show up. As we get into the first missionary journey, we're gonna talk about what I call like conditions of gospel movements, but they're not, they're not like, it's not like a law where if you do these things, these will happen. But there is a sensitivity that Cornelius has to the movement of the Spirit. There is, he's listening and he's reading and he's praying and he's, he's seeking to be faithful in what he knows, but he is not saved. We'll get to that in point three. And so he wants to hear, but he can't tell God when to move and how he's gonna move and what he's going to do. And in fact, God is moving far beyond this. Let's think about it in our own disciple making, in our world, our own culture. Like, is our view of faithfulness just our lives? Or is it in the lives of those we invest in? And then the lives of those they might invest in, and then the lives of those that they might invest in, or are we just really hoping for like one generation of faithfulness and then we're good? Is that all we want? To do one thing right? Well, I just wanna have good kids. If I could have good kids, then, then like I will consider myself a success. And God's like, that's not all I wanna do. I don't want you just to have good kids. Like, look, look what I can do, and look how I can save, and look how I can move, and so God is active far beyond, and praise him for that. Because if we got to write the script, it would be so small. And if we got all of our prayers answered, it would be like Bruce Almighty. Yes, 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 yes. If we just say yes to everything. Because we have this view of like life being about us and what we want and what we want to see, and we never want to see what God wants to see. Even on our best days, we see through cloudy glass. We don't know what's going on. Like I shared before, like I'm like, my best day, I'm hitting 2% maximum efficiency. Like, that's it. And so, when God is active beyond our expectations, I think a good prayer for us is just to go, God, every day, show me something that I wasn't expecting. Remind me of how big you are. 
remind me that salvation goes beyond my expectations. Remind me that you wanna do more in my church life than I wanna do. Remind me that you wanna bring transformation to my community group more than I even wanna see it brought. Remind me that you wanna send people from our church to all nations, nations I haven't even thought about, that you have burdens on people's hearts that we don't even know yet, that we haven't even exposed yet. Remind me of these things because when you start believing that, seeing that and knowing full well that God is active far beyond this little world in which we live, everything we do becomes filled with hope because we're never, we never know. We never know. That's why I, I love getting together. I love it because you never know what happens when we get together around God's word. And it might be that just kind of side conversation that you have that changes the direction of your day or your week or your month or your year. You never know. And how many of us try to script the perfect moment and then it's just some random comment that we made on the side that is what the Lord uses to change somebody or to change us. But I mean, I have my points in the sermon. I have all my notes and things that I wanna say. And then they'll be like, well, you made that joke about Mystery Man and it really made me think. I'm like, what? Like this random thing over here that wasn't even important to me for whatever reason God used. And it changed me. So God is active beyond our expectations. That's the first. The second is this, and this is hard for us. Our own personal histories can blind us to those God wants to save. The church that you were raised in, the culture that you came from, the things that you were taught as a kid, the economic class that you lived within, and the privileges that brought or did not bring. All of those can become thorns in our side when it comes to our understanding of the people that God longs to save. All of them. And so we can't ever think that like, oh, we have to get someone else's grid right because we usually have to get our own right. Churches often grow faster if everyone looks the same. They do. You kind of hit this certain economic status, a certain race, certain stories and songs that you can do, and then boom, 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 all the other people who like those things show up. But the work of the gospel is far beyond that. But I can tell you, as pastors and leaders, it can become so tempting to go, you know what, God seems to be using this one style, let's just do that. And the reason might actually be because that's just where you're more comfortable. It doesn't mean that's because it's right. It doesn't even mean it's because it's good. In Acts chapter 10, God is bringing Jew and Gentile together. We're gonna get into the church in Antioch, but we'll see that the church in Antioch, if you read, read a little further as it begins, uh, they're north of Israel, but the church in Antioch is the first time they're called Christians. It's the first word they give to them. They haven't been called Christians yet. They've been called, like, essentially, believing Jews, followers of the way. There's not a word, they're trying to get their language, but in Antioch, they're first called Christians, and I had a professor at school who, who said this, and I, I believe it to be true, he goes, I don't, 
Because I think the reason that they did that is because they had no word to describe the diversity that existed within the church of Antioch. There wasn't Jewish church, there wasn't Gentile church, there was just this other group of believers together, and we're gonna call them Christians. They got a new title and a new word because of that. And it's interesting that it's in Antioch that we begin the missionary movement of the gospel to those who have never heard. So there might be areas in our own heart where we need to repent of narrow-mindedness in salvation and the people for whom it is. Because you know what? And Tim Keller says this well when he talks about election. He has this great little answer that he gives to his church on what is the doctrine of election. But one of the things that he says so clearly is if you aren't careful, if you aren't careful, what you will start to do is make your salvation about what you were able to do. He goes, so, so he goes, just track it back. He doesn't say track it back, that's how Han says it. I've never heard Tim Keller say track it back in my life. He goes, okay, so, so this person came to faith and this person didn't, why? You go, well, I was listening. Okay, why were you listening? Because my mom taught me to listen. Okay, your mom taught you to listen, great, so now you're listening. Why still? And if you're not careful, what you start to get into is this idea that your salvation came because you did something right and someone else did something wrong that you believed a certain way or heard a certain thing or you were taught a certain thing as to how to behave in a group environment and that's what really did it. He goes, you still have problems if you try to undo that. So, So we have to say it's because God is moving and God is choosing and God is illuminating hearts to the goodness of his gospel, not because you did something right or the conditions were perfect and then you were attuned and you had these experiences, but that's what we might do is we might actually take and make it about us, that my history, my story, my life does this and it actually will then exclude other people who didn't have those experiences. And it'll show up in phrases like this, well, my parents raised me right. No, they didn't. No, they didn't. They did their best, and it still wasn't enough. But they raised me right. Oh, you know, well, I've just always been taught to be respectful, to listen to other people talking. And we make all of these statements about us. So if anybody doesn't do those things, what happens? I hope there's a church for you where you can hear that, but you know, you really gotta be certain levels of engaged in order to operate here. But look at what Peter says. In, chapter, in verse 34, truly I understand that God shows no partiality. Could we make the same statement? Might we be able to make the same statement? Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. And yet we will say he does. Maybe not in our words, but in our hearts. So may 1034 be true for us. God has acted beyond our expectations, one. Our own personal histories can blind us to those God wants to save, two. But then third, this is important, being good is never enough to save us. Okay? And this is important when we see Cornelius. Look at verse two of chapter 10. Cornelius was a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. There's what we see about Cornelius. But as the passage continues, what do we see about Cornelius? He needed the gospel. 
And this is how this can confuse us. We go, well, I don't really know if that person's a believer or not. I mean, I go to XYZ church, so I would assume as much. I was having a conversation with my kids on the way uh, here from Starbucks. And it was like, uh, Dada, you know, I love, I know that you, sometimes your kids wake you up on like fall back and you hate it. I love it. Because I'm like, oh man, Genesis starts at 10.30, which is like 11.30, that's awesome. So we're talking and they're like, Dada, why do so many people go to Starbucks before they go to church on Sundays? <laughs> I said, so well, I, I don't actually know the answer to that, but don't assume that everybody just goes to church. That's not like, like that's, uh, we often, many people don't. Well, why don't they? I was like, because they don't believe it's true. They don't believe it's true. They don't believe it's true? I said, yeah, and you know what? There's gonna be times in your life when you don't believe it's true, probably, and you're gonna wonder why you even go. Uh, but we're gonna go. Why do we go? Well, because you're the preacher. <laughs> yeah? And because we believe in God. I was like, right, I, I, I get that. But where you attend and what you do does not then define what you believe about Jesus. I mean, I wish it did. It'd be way easier. Everyone who attends church on a Sunday, stamp, you're in. Everyone who doesn't, you better get there. But when we see in verse two that Cornelius was devout, he feared God with his whole household, he gave generously and he prayed continually, what would that be? A works-based salvation. He did certain things, he prayed, he was kind, he was loving, and this can sneak into how we talk about people, can it? I mean, he's just so loving. He's just so kind, he's just so generous, he prays all the time. That must, I mean, if that kind of guy can't get saved, then who can? Being good is never enough to save us. Look then at verse 43. To him all the prophets bear witness to everyone who believes in him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So what we see is that there is nobody who is saved by merely being religious, by merely being good, even if you would think those things are good. They are. Cornelius is spoken of incredibly well by Luke before his salvation. If you go kind of, who are the good people in Acts? Cornelius would be on that list. Solid dudes who I'd like to be friends with. Cornelius, yeah, I mean, he might he have me over after church and give me lunch, like, I don't know. But the passage is clear that it was not Cornelius' goodness that saved him, it was Jesus. It was not Cornelius' kindness that saved him or his prayers or his giving or his Bible reading that saved him, it was Jesus. And Peter came and he preached a resurrected Jesus, and then the Spirit came. So I hope for our sakes that we do not just assume that because people behave in a certain way, or that our kids behave in a certain way, or that our friends behave in a certain way, that we just kind of write them off and go, okay, well, they're good, because good is not good enough. Never is. Giving is not giving enough. Praying is not praying enough. You can't do enough of anything and then find your salvation in Jesus. But we have to remember what Peter says. All the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him, in him. And we notice again, and this is important for our reminders of how Jesus saves people, it takes somebody to proclaim it. 
There was a vision that Cornelius had. And you notice what Cornelius didn't do in that vision, or God didn't do in that vision, was go, hey, Cornelius, let me tell you exactly how you get saved. He goes, go get Peter. Go get Peter. And then Peter goes, because God uses us. We saw the same thing in Saul's conversion in Acts chapter nine. Ananias is gonna come, and he's gonna tell you. Jesus showed up and confronted Saul, who we often call Paul, and Jesus didn't go, believe in me. He said, Ananias is coming. Go into Damascus and wait. Because the gospel takes messengers. That's why we have to be zealous about the places where the gospel's never been proclaimed because we see from Cornelius that good enough is not good enough. Kind and loving and attuned to spiritual things is not good enough. It still takes Jesus because you can't replace that with works. The New Testament is abundantly clear that salvation comes by people preaching the name of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus. We can never just go, well, they're good. We got it. They got it. And something that we might also do is go, well, if we go and we preach Jesus to them and we go to an unreached place and say it, well, now they're kind of accountable for it. What if they reject him then? That's not our job. What we do know is that if we don't proclaim him, it's done. It's done. So we must go and we must preach and we must reject the gospel of works that will so often seep into our beliefs and our behaviors and our activity because we just kind of go, well, they, they seem good. And we forget that salvation comes by grace through faith every time. Not by grace through works. Good activity, looking good, looking godly. So we go to that statement, Jesus died for whom? I think pretty often we would say like this, Jesus died for you, but I think we need to change that and just say this, Jesus died for us. That's what Peter realized. I don't have the corner on Jesus. Cornelius doesn't have the corner on Jesus. We are together in our need of him. We are together in what he has done and our need for faith in him. Because Jesus died for you is like me going, I have it, you don't, you need to hear it. Jesus died for me is kind of like, I have it, you don't, and I'm really glad I have it. Jesus died for us is, there's no other way. There's no other way for me, there's no other way for you, it's for us. And it removes any sort of special identity that you might have. For I see now that God shows no partiality. I wanna pray for this. This could be more and more true in our lives and our hearts and that we are sure, sure as a church that we preach and proclaim and live a gospel of grace and faith and not one of works, that that's what we need. So let me pray for us now. Father, as we read statements like, truly I understand that God knows, shows no partiality and all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him, Jesus, receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Lord, might that ring true in our hearts every day. Might we repent of our narrow-mindedness and closed hearts that would assume that certain people are in and certain people are out.
Father, I would ask that in your grace you would show us, you would show us, Lord, the love that you have for all and that if necessary, you would rebuke us of the love that we have for some. Might you transform us as a people that Jesus died for all of us that all of us might have life. May that be what we sing and worship, rejoice in our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Father, forgive us that we so often divide up over the wrong things and we preach or believe in some kind of works-based righteousness that is not how you save and that is not what you want. So continue, Lord, by your grace and the power of your spirit to transform us as a people and to those who delight in glory and the gospel of Jesus over anything else. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.